Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7, through chapter 12, verse 7. And would you please stand in honor of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7, through chapter 12, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. And put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and let the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, And the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the window are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshoppers drag itself along. And desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This is God's word. Please be seated. You can keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes 11. We have just two weeks left in this series. A recent uh, article in The Guardian, which is a publication in the UK, described the top five regrets that people have at the end of life. This was a list collected by a nurse uh, who worked with men and women in their final months of life. The Guardian reports, there was no mention of more sex or bungee jumps. Rather, the top five regrets of the dying, as witnessed by this nurse, Brawny Ware. Number one, I wished I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. This was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and they look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Health brings a freedom very few realize until they no longer have it. Number two, I wished I hadn't worked so hard. Uh, This came from every male patient that she nursed. They missed their children's youth and their spouse's companionship. 
Number three, I wished I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Many people suppress their feelings in order to keep peace with others. As a result, they settled for a mediocre existence and never became who they were truly capable of becoming. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Often they would not truly realize the full benefits of old friends until the dying weeks, and it was not always possible to track them down. Number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. This is a surprisingly common one, according to the nurse. Many did not realize until the end that happiness is a choice. They had stayed stuck in old patterns and habits. Fear of change had them pretending to others and to themselves that they were content when deep within they longed to laugh properly and have silliness in their life again. Now, there's nothing scientific about that study. This is merely the reflections of one nurse in her work, uh, nor is there anything particularly spiritual, spiritual about that perspective. But it is pretty honest. It is pretty honest, and I would venture to guess it's relatively reflective of people, uh, of attitudes and regrets at the end of life. Life is a gift, and we only get one. So how are we going to spend it? How are we going to spend it? More specifically in our passage, youth and health are gifts. How will we spend those? Those are questions that our passage this morning is going to force us to wrestle with. Uh, The word youth is mentioned four times in these verses, being young. So what does it look like to steal the title of uh, a recent single by One Direction What does it look like to live while we're young? Let's pray and seek uh, the Lord and his guidance in his word. Jesus, we do want to hear your voice this morning. We do want to see what you have to say to a question that, if we're honest, we all think about daily. How am I going to spend my day today? Am I going to do what I want? Am I going to do what's honoring? Am I going to do what's damaging? What do we spend our lives doing? Lord, may your word guide us as we think about that this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage begins uh, by reminding us, as Ecclesiastes has reminded us several times throughout this book, that life is in fact a gift, even despite the trials of old age and death, which the book has also reminded us about multiple times so far. Uh, life is a gift. Look at, look at verse 7 with me. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now, the, the language of seeing the sun uh, in Ecclesiastes, that's language of being alive. You have your eyes open, you can see the sun. When your eyes are closed in the grave, you can't see the sun anymore. So it's a picture of being alive. And according to the preacher who was probably the ancient King Solomon, seeing the sun basking in the light of life is uh, its sweet and pleasant. It's a joy. As he said elsewhere in the book, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Life is a gift. And it's a gift that God calls us throughout this book to enjoy and make the most of. We've seen six times already in Ecclesiastes, he's stopped us and told us, about the importance of rejoicing, 
taking joy in our toil, taking joy in what's before us. And this is the final time he's going to tell us that. The beginning of verse 8 says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. And again, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. So the preacher not only commends joy, he actually commands it in this book. He commands it. And we'll talk about what that means to live a life of joy in a little bit. But we see already life is a gift to be enjoyed, not to be taken for granted. And that's in part because it's a gift that does not last. It's a gift that does not last, at least not under the sun, in what you and I see and do and experience day in and day out in this world. We all have an expiration date. We all have an expiration date. And recognizing that mortality, recognizing the brevity of life, is a key motivation for making the most of it while we have it, uh, in whatever days God gives us. Look again uh, with me at verse 8 and hear the urgency, the urgency there of rejoicing in all of life. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So part of what helps us enjoy whatever days God gives us, not just our youth, but also in our old age, is the reminder that the days of darkness are coming, which in contrast to the sweetness of light, in verse 8 refers, I think, to the bitterness of death. Death is around the corner. All that comes is vanity, not necessarily meaningless, but fleeting, temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. Vapor. And so again, in verse 10, it tells us, remove vexation or or trouble, anxiety from your heart and put away pain from your body. Why? For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Youthful vitality, that energy you feel. You know, some of us wish we had that energy of a teenager again. That, that's fleeting. It doesn't stick around forever. So enjoy life while you can. Similarly, chapter 12, verse 1, reminds us that dark days are ahead. The evil days and the years of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Youth does not last. And what follows uh, from this verse Uh, in uh, verses 2 through 7, is a rather playful description of old age. Uh, Though people have understand these verses uh, in several different ways, the imagery here is almost certainly an allegory or an extended metaphor uh, about the effects of old age leading up to death. And it does so by describing a house and an estate falling apart. Uh, most of us, I think, will find some humor in this, but probably for different reasons. I think young people will look at this and laugh at the silliness of a picture. Older people will probably chuckle at how true to life it really is. Um, but all of us take heed, as this is where the train's going, no matter how much track you have between you and the destination. So as life draws to a close, the sweetness of light is darkened. Verse 2, this is chapter 12, verse 2. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened 
and the clouds return after the rain. The storm rolls in over the house. The sun and the moon are darkened, a sign in the Old Testament, among other things, that the end is coming. Verse 3, in the days when the keepers of the house tremble, this is probably a, a reference to arms that used to do all the housework, but now are, are shaking due to old age. And the strong men are bent, most likely the legs, pictured here as those that used to bear heavy loads but are now bent under the weight of years of labor. And the grinders cease because they are few. Take a guess at that one. The teeth, they're fewer and fewer. They're no longer able to do their job of grinding up food as the way a miller grinds grain. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. Loss of eyesight. It's pictured as the ladies of the estate kind of sitting in the living room, peering out the window, but now they can't see anything anymore. Verse 4, the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. Probably the ears that can't hear anything outside anymore are shut. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. It's a picture of the sleepless nights of old age, roused by the smallest sound. And all the daughters of song are brought low, probably a weakened voice. The the ladies who would sing and entertain in the estate, they lost their voice. It no longer works. Verse 5. They're also afraid of what is high, and terrors are in the way. So perhaps the fear of falling in your old age, or just the phobias that develop at the end of life. The almond tree blossoms. Beautiful head of white hair like an almond blossom. The grasshopper drags itself along, limping, getting around when the body no longer works the way it's supposed to. And desire fails. That is sexual desire. You know, more literally, the caper berry doesn't work, which was an ancient aphrodisiac. So, in other words, the Cialis doesn't help anymore. And Why? Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets. And so here you have an unambiguous picture that death is knocking. And unlike the temporary home that has just fallen apart around you, at death we go to an eternal home, an abiding one. Now Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us much about what that means. The New Testament tells us a lot more. And we'll touch on it briefly later. But look at the imagery at the end of verse 6. So, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, it's a picture of a golden bowl lamp hanging like a chandelier in the living room. And the silver cord it's hanging from snaps. And the bowl comes crashing down. And the lights go out. That's death. Or... The pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. The wheel that you know, lifts the, the pitcher up out of the cistern, it breaks and down comes the clay pot. And in verse 7, with an echo of Genesis 1 through 3, we get the most specific description of death in the book. And the dust returns to earth as it was, 
Our body's in the grave. And the spirit to God who gave it. It's interesting. The book of Ecclesiastes began with Solomon building his palace and his estate in chapter 2, looking for life. It ends now with the picture of an estate falling apart uh, to represent his decaying life. Now, I want to ask a question. Seniors, our seasoned saints, is what we just read true? That picture of the trials of old age, do you feel that? Is Solomon making this up? Amen? Okay. Now, young people, did you hear that amen? Do you believe that that will be true of you? Not very far off. And if so, how are you going to spend your life? The point of all of this is that God wants us to make the most of our life before this happens. You know, chapter 12, verse 1 Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Three times in these verses, before, before, before. And back in chapter 11, verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. So what does it mean to make the most of our life now? To rejoice in all our days, but especially our youth. Well, according to Solomon, it requires relating to God as both creator and judge. Relating to God as both creator and judge. Look again at verse 9 with me. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So his call to joy is anchored in the reminder that God is judge. And look again at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. So enjoying life and youth requires remembering God as our creator. Making the most of life and youth in a world given to decay and to death requires living in communion with God, our Creator and our Judge. Knowing God as Creator and as Judge. To put it another way, true joy, lasting joy that really satisfies in this life requires both purpose and constraint. Purpose and constraint. It is in knowing God as creator that we find purpose for our lives. And it's in knowing God as judge that we're reminded to live according to that purpose. And to show constraint in how we live, denying ourselves of some things in order to say yes to God and his purpose. Now, of course, that sounds like no fun at all. That sounds like, you know, there's no real way to live uh, For most young people, it's just another example of God being a cosmic killjoy. Yeah, that's nice. Go tell me to have fun and then tell me I'm going to be judged later. Thanks. It certainly was not compelling for a good chunk of my teenage years. But I think that simply betrays our fundamental misunderstanding of joy. What is joy? 
Think of it like this. The joy and satisfaction of playing a game is only full when we play by the rules. So according to the purpose of the game and in submission to the rules and to the officials or judges who hold you to account. You will never enjoy the game of golf if you ignore its purpose and score it the way you would score basketball. You know, there's, there's no fun in just running up the score on the green in golf. Anybody can do that. Trust me, I can do that. Neither is there any joy in a game when we ignore the rules. Nobody trains four years for the Olympics in order to get disqualified. You don't do that. And no one likes to play with a cheat. You know? There's no real glory or satisfaction in cheating, even if it leads to victory. Because even if no one else knows, you do. You know you didn't earn it. You know you did not win. There's no joy and satisfaction in that. Games are only fun and enjoyable when we play by the rules. You can't tackle the ref on the football field and then rewrite the rules after he's out of the way. You're not playing football anymore. You're playing something else. To be fully enjoyed, deeply satisfying, a game must be played with both purpose and constraint. And life is no different. Life is no different. We were made by our Creator for a purpose, which I think the Westminster Catechism summarizes beautifully. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is, to make much of God. To display to others how worthy and beautiful He is. And to delight yourself in His worthiness and His beauty forever. That's what we were made for. As the Westminster Catechism puts it, you look at Genesis. As humans made in His image, God wants us to know Him, and to respect Him, to love Him, and to enjoy Him above all earthly treasures. And then to serve Him by, again, reflecting that beauty, delighting ourselves in God and His worthiness, that the whole earth might be filled with that glory. We were made for a purpose. And God, our Creator, will judge our lives according to this purpose. Whether we gave God the honor due His name, or whether we, and, and whether we exercised constraint in saying no to some things in order to say yes to God, we will be judged for whether we lived according to His purpose. And when that purpose is in place that we were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that's when we're actually free to enjoy life. You know, when we're free, as 11.9 puts it, to walk in the ways of our hearts and the sight of our eyes, to seek to enjoy life. Now, when Solomon says that, walk in the way of your heart and so on, he's not talking about some sort of shallow, self-centered, be-true-to-yourself kind of thing. Be true to your heart as your heart is anchored in the purposes of God, which is when your heart is most alive. Walk in the ways of your heart. 
follow the sight of your eyes, not in terms of just grabbing whatever's in front of you, but in terms of contentment with whatever God has given you. If we look at that phrase back in chapter 6, verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. It's a picture of contentment with what we have. And as you seek to enjoy life according to God's purpose, being satisfied in Him, we're actually free to enjoy and seek pleasure in life and the things of life without worshiping them because we're worshiping God instead. So we can enjoy the food, the friendships, the the laughter, the life experiences that are an echo and a signpost pointing to our ultimate joy in God. And part of that, young people, listen up, part of that pursuit of joy in our youth, according to verse 10, means putting away our vexations, our anxieties, the things that trouble your heart and weigh you down, the burdens you carry in your body, because youth is a gift that does not last. Young people, there is a sense in which God tells you not to grow up too quickly. Not in terms of prolonged immaturity or irresponsibility or selfishness. You're going to have plenty of time to worry about all the troubles and difficulties of life in a fallen world. You have plenty of time for that. It is a good thing, I think verse 10 is telling us, to have fun in your youth. To run around and tear up the basketball court. To pummel each other with snowballs. To laugh and be goofy. To enjoy life as a child. That's a good thing to do in your youth. But that joy, the fun that you have, will only be meaningful insofar as it's rooted in your purpose to glorify God and with a recognition that He is your judge. There is a standard of holiness revealed in Scripture, and it applies even to our fun. And God will hold us to account. Again, you have to play by the rules to really enjoy the game. Now, the temptation, of course, is to just ignore God's purpose, to rewrite the rules, to disregard His right as our Creator and King to judge us and to seek pleasure in life on our own terms or on somebody else's terms the temptation to listen to some other voice in our effort to make the most of life and youth. And so I want all of us right now, but especially young people, teenagers, young adults, I want all of us to ask honestly this question, which voice am I listening to as I look for happiness and joy in life? Which voice am I listening to as I look for happiness and joy in life? For some of us, it, the, the predominant voice we hear is that of pop culture. So it's the world of entertainment around us telling us what it means to enjoy life. Take One Direction's uh, new song, which I stole the title of this sermon from. Now, I don't know if you've heard it, and uh, you don't necessarily have to rush out to iTunes to listen to it, but the song rightly captures the urgency of making the most of our youth. And at least on this point, the, the, the band is on to something. Youth is a gift not to be squandered. But that's where the similarity between Solomon and Zane and Liam and Harry and company ends. 
I'll spare you the lyrics, but the song is essentially about a high school boy convincing a high school girl he barely knows to sneak out of her house and go have sex with him. That's the song. That's what it means, according to One Direction, to live while we're young. The world tells us that joy is the freedom to do whatever we think will give us pleasure. The world tells us that joy is the freedom to do whatever we think will give us pleasure. But that kind of unconstrained joy never provides the satisfaction it promises. And we all know this to be true. Now, this was my story through most of my high school, an empty pursuit of joy. You know, the thrill of underage drinking gives way to the fear of being found out when you get home. It's not very much fun anymore. Things we thought would bring us joy eventually result in fear, in shame, regret, even despair, if we face it honestly. We need the purpose and the constraint that comes from knowing God, our Creator, and our Judge. For others, uh, it's not so much the entertainment um, as it is somebody else's voice telling us how to live and enjoy life. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe you know it's, it's what you think will please them, and that's how you're looking for joy in life. Maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe even a spouse. And so you live your life to keep them happy, thinking that that is joy. But we know that doesn't work. Because honestly, they're pretty hard to keep happy. They're looking for their joy in you, and you're looking for your joy in them, and neither of you can give what the other one wants. And that's a recipe for disaster. Maybe it's your parents' voice that dictates your life. Living to please mom and dad and fulfill their dreams for you. Now, I want to be clear, very clear. It is a good, godly, and holy thing to honor our parents. God calls us to obey and respect and honor our parents. And there's actually much joy and freedom in doing that. I learned that the hard way. We often just brush this aside, disobedience to parents. It's just a phase or something. It's not a phase, it's sin. We need to treat it like sin. We need grace and repentance. It is a good thing to honor our parents. It is not, however, a good thing to worship them. And that's what I want to talk about for a minute. Some of you young people, and some of you who aren't that young anymore, find your life and your significance, your joy, in your parents' approval. When you sit down to take a test, when you step onto the playing field, or onto the stage, the voice that's driving you in your head is your parents' praise, or else just doing well enough that I don't get scolded as a failure again. And that's what you're living for, that voice. So joy is all about pleasing them. And when that's hard to do, and when you're not sure whether or not you're going to find love and acceptance on the other side of your performance... There's not much joy in your youth. There's not much joy. And parents need to listen to this because some of you 
are creating a scenario that not only encourages this, but actually demands it from your kids. Because rather than teaching them to find their significance in what Jesus thinks of them and what Jesus has done for them, you're finding your own life and significance in how they perform and in what others think about you based on them. And not only are you robbing their youth of joy in the anxiety and fear of whether or not you will accept them, you're poisoning their view of God. Because you're giving them the impression that just as they have to perform for you to be loved and accepted, so they have to perform for Him. And some of them are going to grow up carrying a guilt and a shame and a sense of failure that will never leave them. And they're still going to be performing for you in their career and in how they raise their kids, dreading or maybe looking forward to what you're going to say at Thanksgiving when you spend time together. Some of them are going to learn to perform well. They're going to learn to really impress you. And they're going to become some of the most self-righteous people you've ever known. And some of them, when they, the minute they're out of your house, are going to say, I've had enough of you and of Christianity and the whole package. See you later. Parents are to be honored and respected and obeyed, but not worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. He's the one who defines our life and our value and our significance. Not our culture, not one another, not even our own hearts. And so young people, old people, if we're to make the most of our days for joy, we must find our life and our identity in God and His purpose for us which is possible for sinners only through the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And when we look at a passage like this, and it talks about the fact that God has a purpose and then will judge us for whether or not we live according to that purpose, we have to ask the question, okay, so what if I've already blown it? What now? What about the young man already enslaved to pornography? What about the young girl trapped in an eating disorder? What about the old man at the end of his life and his mind's just going over all those regrets, the things he wished he would have done, the words he wishes he could take back but he can't? Is, you know, is there any hope for those who've fallen short of God's purpose or is his judgment all that remains for us? Well, the beauty and the hope and the majesty of Christianity is that our Creator and our Judge is also our Savior. And He has worked salvation precisely for those who forgot all about their Creator and sought their pleasure in something other than Him. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God made us for a purpose to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever. And His love for us was such that He was unwilling to sit back and watch us throw away that purpose on lesser joys, on joys that would betray us and even kill us. And so He sent, in His love, He sent His Son Jesus to take on human flesh, to walk in perfect faithfulness to God and His purpose. And while we ridiculed him for that faithfulness and mocked him for it and rejected him because of it, he willingly died the cruelest death for us. He took the judgment that we deserved on himself to wash us, to sanctify us, to justify us, so that we would be declared not guilty of our just punishment through faith in Jesus so that we, like Him, will rise in the newness of life and the hope of resurrection. Through faith in Jesus, we have communion with God, our Creator, our Judge, and our Savior. And it's in this communion that we find true and lasting joy. A joy that is free from guilt and shame and fear and regret. Because all of that's been done away with. On the cross, a joy that doesn't depend on our performance for God or for someone else, because Christ has accomplished that for us. And if we're trusting in Him, we are united with Him by faith. It's a joy that doesn't corrode with age, unlike our bodies. You know, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, though our outer nature is wasting away, Our inner nature, our heart, is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, vapor, vanity. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Through our communion with God in Christ, as we treasure Him above everything else this world affords, as we depend on the Holy Spirit whom He's given us, we have a joy that comes from living according to His purpose. As His grace teaches us in Titus to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, in the meantime, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, eager to do them. This is joy that lasts. This is joy that lasts. Communion with God. 
freedom in Christ. Will we pursue that joy all our days, especially while we're young? Let's pray. Lord, teach us to number our days. For some of us, the thought of failing bodies and imminent death is absolutely terrifying. Because we think of all the things we've wanted to do but haven't had a chance to. For some of us, that thought isn't even in the back of our head. We, we live as though we're invincible. But Lord, what both of us need, whether it's a selfish ignorance or a, a selfish fear, is you. Your joy, your son, who gives us life and significance, who redeems all our failures, who strengthens us to walk faithfully, even when this world presses hard against us. God, will you give us that joy? And may we have fun in this life, a fun that honors you and comes from you, our fount of every blessing. May we make the most of our days for the sake of your name. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, the anthem that the choir can come forward... um, is about to sing is actually one of my favorite choral pieces. Uh, my song is Love Unknown. The words were written about 400 years ago. They're a beautiful expression of the gospel of Jesus and the gospel that gives us joy and the gospel that we're going to celebrate with the Lord's table this morning. Uh, this particular arrangement of this song also invites the congregation to join in on verse 4. So if you look in your worship folder, you'll find a purple sheet of paper, and I believe Drew will give you the cue at the right time. But let's worship the Lord uh, and His incomprehensible love.